Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Uh, we are in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Chapter 9. If you have your Bible, you can open to 2 Samuel 9. If you need a Bible, just get the attention of one of the ushers, and they will drop one off to you. And let's, uh, let's begin. I want to read the chapter, and then we will pray, and then we will get into uh, the message tonight. I see a hand there in the back. It says this. It says that in verse 1, it says that David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son, which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Mechir, the son of Amiel in Lodibar. Then King David sent <coughs> and fetched him out of the house of Mechir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake. And will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father. And thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant (coughs) that you should look upon such a dead dog as I am? Then the king called unto Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have given unto your master's son all that pertained to Saul and to all his house. Thou, therefore, and thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him, and you shall bring in the fruits that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread always at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then said Ziba unto the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, He shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all that dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants unto Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table and was lame or crippled on both of his feet. Let's pray. Father, we again, we know that you're here. We know that you've heard. God, you've prepared our hearts for this moment and this message for this time. And so we ask you, Lord, now that your spirit would fall upon us, that we would have attention to what you want to speak to us individually, that we would hear not just your voice, but your heart through the text that's before us. So would you anoint this building, this place, this time? Would you separate us, Lord, unto your word, and that we'd be changed by the impact, the meaning of what's here before us. So help us now to understand, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, those of you that are regulars on Wednesday night know I I have not been here uh, for a couple of weeks. Last week, we went to uh, the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum 
down in Kentucky. Uh, those of you that have been there and seen it, it, it is uh, a worthy trip. Sometimes you think, well, you know, I'm going to go there and do that, and then what? You know, like in middle America and the whole thing. Um, but it is a, a worthy trip. And one of the, uh, the things that I, I absolutely just loved about being there, uh, first of all, the presence of God w- was so so evidently upon the place. I mean, it was so amazing that even the animals were anointed, like in the petting zoos. It was unlike anything I've ever seen where they, it's like they just want to come and hang out with you, you know, and I'm not really that much of an animal lover, but I would just come and they just come over and like hang out. They're like, hey, and they're like right here in your face and they're like, they want to get to know you. You know, it's like, Narnia, are you going to st- talk to me or something? I mean, it was, it, was, it was just like that. There was a piece there. But um, I-, I loved the clarity of, of their vision, you know, what they do out there. And, and I'm not ranting right now. I'm going to tie this in in a second. But um, they, they really know why they exist as a ministry. You know, they, they exist to, uh, to demonstrate and, and to declare and to put forth uh, emphatically and unapologetically uh, that the earth was created in six literal days about 6,000 years ago. That every word of the Bible is absolutely true and reliable, and that it's all there to point to Jesus' death and resurrection for the sake of the salvation of the sins of mankind. And, and they are so clear on that vision. Every single person that works there, uh, from like the higher uppers that you only see in videos down to the person who's sweeping the floor, that's all they talk about. That's all you get. And you go there going like, yeah, the earth was created in six days and 6,000 years. So the Lord the Bible's absolutely true. And Jesus died for my sins and he loves me to death, you know. And there's just such a clarity in it. Um, but, but one of the things that, um, that I didn't like about it, and this isn't their fault, this is our fault is that they, they do a very good job of, of showing the contrast between um, the creation and the perfect world and the fall, what happened after Adam and Eve uh, rebelled against God and, and sinned. And so they, they do this amazing job of painting a picture of Eden, you know, the good, the very good creation that God made in the beginning. And, and you're in it. Like they, they make it 4D. You smell the smells. You feel every. It's amazing. Like you're in it. Like you're there. It's like you're in that perfect world and you feel what it felt like to be in that place. And, and then like you, you see, you're in creation and then you see like a sign that points to corruption, which is what happens next. It's kind of the, where you go after creation and, and you kind of know what's going to happen. You know, so you're walking towards it and you're like, no, no, like, I don't want to leave this. Like, this is good. Like, let's stay here. This is it. And then you come around the corner and everything's black and you just see images of the Holocaust and of genocide and of starving people. And, and it's like, all of a sudden, no, can we just go back? I don't want to be in this part. You know, this is, this is awful. You know, this is not what the, the world was supposed to be. This is not very good. And, and they just do a very excellent job of doing that. Now, I, I know that's kind of a long uh, segue, but it's a re-intro to me coming back. But that's kind of where we are in the life of David. I mean, David is in the summer season of his life. He's done with the trials. He's done with the testings, the provings. I mean, everything is firing on all cylinders for him when we, where we pick up with him here. I mean, he's the king over united Israel. He has the allegiance and the love of the people. He has brought the ark into Jerusalem. He has built a palace of cedar. He is conquering enemies effortlessly. Everything is just rolling for David at this point, and everything that he touches and does is just blessed. And and as we're studying it, me personally, I just want to stay here. Can the rest of the Bible just be all the great things that happened to David, you know? But really, we get two more chapters of that, and then 
th- th- we're going to go around the corner. We're going to go from, from, from perfection to corruption, and, and it's going to change. And, and though David at this point, he's been the king for about 15 years, and he's going to be the king for another 25 or so, yet the second half is way different than the first half. So, so where we are, as we pick up in chapter 9, is really kind of the August of David's life. You know that feeling you get in August, like mid-August, where the sun is setting a little bit earlier in the day, the evenings get a little bit chilly, and you just kind of get that feeling. It's not despair, it's that feeling that the summer is coming to an end. The carefree time is almost over. That's where we are. So we're going to stretch it out as long as we can before we get to chapter 11 and things begin to fall apart for David. God still has something to tell us there and there's still good things on the other side of it. But we are in that part of David's uh, place. Now, what we know about David, uh, we read the Psalms, we've studied his life, we have heard the stories. What we know of David is that he's a deeply emotional man. He's a very reflective man. He, he's one who, when he does have those moments where he sits, he, he doesn't thumb through, scroll through things on his phone. Like he is deeply contemplative about the things that have happened in his life. He is aware of where he's been and what he's been through and the people that have impacted his life and the trials that he has gone through and the things that he has learned and everything that has brought him to where he is, he is constantly mindful of all of it. And David has perspective. He can see clearly. He's able to look at all of it. And through the lens of that, he sees that everything that he went through in the difficult years Those things were worked together for the good. His trials were servants to his future. And he realizes that all of those things, as hard as they were, they were good and they were necessary. He's not bitter. He's not resentful. He's not vengeful. He's at peace with what's going on in in his past and in his present and what's coming in his future. And that's David. He is able to connect his past to his present and, and, and then allow that to inform his future. And he's keenly aware of it. And so as we pick up here, we have this moment of reflection for David. That he's there and, and he's in his palace. He's at rest from all of his enemies. His trials are complete. Everything is blessed and flourishing. And as he's considering all that has been, bringing him up to this point, his friend Jonathan comes into his mind. He had made a covenant with Jonathan, the son of Saul, years before this moment where David is now. And it says that Jonathan loved David like he loved his own soul. And there was a bond, a brotherhood between the two of them that was deeper probably than any bond David ever had after that. And and Jonathan, in one of the final times that he was with David, he made him promise. He said, David, make me a promise. And it's in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14. I want to read it to you. Jonathan said to David, he said that you shall not only while yet I live show me the kindness of the Lord that I die not, but also you shall not cut off your kindness from my house or my family forever, my descendants. No, not when the Lord has cut off the enemies of David, every one of them from the face of the earth. 
So Jonathan made a covenant or a, a contract with the house of David saying, let the Lord even require it at the hand of David's enemies. He made him promise that, that he would hold to be kind to show the kindness of God to his descendants. And now probably 20 years on the other side of that moment, David thinking about Jonathan, about his past, he sends a message. He inquires and he says, I miss Jonathan and I want to hold true to what I promised to, his, to him and to his descendants. And so he seeks out and asks, is there anyone of the sons of Jonathan that are left alive after all of the war and the battle that I may show, he calls it the kindness of God to him. That's what he wants to do. Now, I want you to understand the kindness of God, because it's called that back in the promise in 1 Samuel 20, and David emphatically declares it here that he wants to show him the kindness of God. And what we must understand is that kindness is an attribute of who our God is. When God declared his name to Moses, Moses said, tell me your name. And God at first said, I am. But then God said, you're not going to be able to see my glory and live, so let me hide you here, and I'm going to pass by. I'm going to let you see the tailwinds of my passing, and, and you'll get to see that much. But if you see any more than that, it'll overwhelm you and you'll die. And so Moses hides there, and God comes by, and God declares his name. And I want you to listen to what God says to Moses concerning what his name is. It's Exodus 34, verse 6. It says that the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. That's God, that's his name. And he uses the word goodness. It's the Hebrew word chazed, which is the exact same Hebrew word for kindness that David uses, that Jonathan used when they asked for the kindness of God. God's goodness or God's kindness is a part of his name. It's a part of his nature. It's who he is. Jesus declared concerning the kindness of God in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. Uh, I'm looking at the wrong chapter. Oh, he says, no, I am looking at the wrong chapter. Chapter 6, what does it say on yours? Okay, it's the wrong one. Okay, Jesus said that God shows kindness to the just and to the unjust, to the good and to the evil, that it's a part of his very nature that he does that. I'll give it to you next week. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, where Paul the Apostle talks about the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit and what he produces in himself. Kindness is a part of that list. He says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness. That's the word in the Greek that equates with the kindness of God, that it's his gentleness or his goodness, his kindness. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, the love chapter, where it defines that love is patient. Love is what? Kind. That's right. Love is kind. It's a part of who God is. And the Bible says that God is love. The kindness of God is inseparable from the person of God. 
And it's the kindness of God that is the attribute of his love that gives. So when we read that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, he was given out of a heart of kindness. It was a heart of benevolence and a heart of goodness that he wanted to extend a gift to a lost and dying world that's part of who he is. And now David, being a recipient of the kindness of God himself, he now wants to shed the kindness of God upon the descendant of Jonathan. And so he inquires, and he finds a man named Ziba, who had been a servant in the household of Saul. And he calls for him, and he asks, and he says, are there yet any descendants of Jonathan that I might show unto him the kindness of God? And Ziba says, yes, there is yet one man. And then he tells him who he is. He says, he's lame on his feet. In other words, he's crippled and he can't walk. He's lame. Now, I am a little bit taken aback by the fact that this guy is so quick to identify this man by his condition. Doesn't even tell him his name. We don't get the name of the man all the way down until David sent for him and he is brought forward. But this man only knows him by the condition that he is currently in, that he is crippled. He's identified by his flaw and not by his name. How many people in here feel like you're identified more by your flaws than by who you actually are? How many in here have ever had someone introduced to you by their flaw and not by their name and who they are? How many of you ever said, hey, do you know? And the answer comes back, yes, you mean the drunk? Yes, you mean the man who's so lazy he can't get himself together and, and, and hold down a job for two weeks? Yes, oh, you mean the one who is so poor that he has not two nickels to rub together? You mean that one? You mean the one who's manic, schizophrenic, the one who's crazy? That one, is that who you're talking about? But that's exactly what the servant does. He, David says, is there a man? And he says, yes, he is lazy. He is a lazy, lame, useless person, not worth the time that you would put anything into him at all. What he doesn't tell David in identifying this man is the story or the reason why he's crippled in both of his feet. The Bible tells us why. There is a backstory behind it. But David doesn't know it, and David doesn't get it here. It's back in 2 Samuel chapter 4. It tells us this, that during the time when Saul and Jonathan were killed during an invasion of the Philistines, it says in 2 Samuel 4 verse 4, it says that Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame in his feet. And now it tells us why. He was five years old when the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel. That means that they had been invaded and that they died. And his nurse, his caretaker, took him up and fled. And it came to pass as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So he wasn't born a cripple. He didn't do anything in his behavior that caused him to become crippled. It was something that was completely outside of his control and he became the victim of a circumstance. That's the story. Have you ever believed something about someone and then later come to find that the evidence led you to the wrong conclusion? 
you saw something or heard something about someone, you looked quickly at the things surrounding their life and you just ran with it without actually knowing what the story is. I'm so thankful that David, and it's probably the byproduct of the things that he has been through, isn't one to just take the story that's told about someone and run with it. But David inquires further. He says, where is he? And then the answer comes. He says that he is in the house of Mekir, which means sold. And then he tells him uh, in, in the land of Lodabar, which means a place without pasture or pastureless. So we have this man, not yet given his name, and we know that something has happened to him that's not his fault, but because of it, he's crippled in both of his feet and that he's in a condition where he's unable to help himself. And that's pretty sad. Because he was born destined to be a prince, but now he's living crippled in Lodabar, which means a land of no pasture or no food or the unsatisfied need. Interestingly, the name Mephibosheth that we're finally given means destroying shame. And it's kind of a play on words in a sense because no one names their son destroying shame because they want them to be destroyed by shame. They name them destroying shame because they want that to be their legacy, that they lived a life destroying shame. But unfortunately for Mephibosheth, the prayer that was offered over his life in naming him that has become his destiny, that he is the victim of a destroying shame. He's carrying the reproach of being a crippled, of being unproductive, of being sold into a place where he's living pastureless, a prince who has become a crippled pauper. And it's a sad situation that he's in. Now, this is one of the most well-loved stories of the Old Testament for those that are Bible students and that have studied the life of David and the whole thing. People love this story. But I always ask the question, why is it in the Bible? And, and I think that that's a great way to approach the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, really all of it, is that anytime you read the Bible, read what's there, study what's there, understand it, but always ask the question, why is it here? And then once you come up with the answer, ask the question again. Yeah, but why is it here? And then once you come up with the answer, ask it again. Why is it here? And then once you, and listen, you can do that for the rest of your life. And you're going to keep seeing God is going to show more and more. But you ask, okay, God, I know that you're kind and tender. And these stories kind of like lift us emotionally. And we're like, yeah, Mephibosheth, get your seat at the table. And this is a victory for kindness. And this is what we're supposed to do. This is live the gospel. And that, yes, that is absolutely true. But there are so many things done by so many that they're good, but they don't make the pages of scripture. And so I wonder in myself and I say, Lord, why did you put this passage in the Bible? And I believe that there are multiple layers of truth that are displayed and put forward in this story. First is that this episode, this experience by Mephibosheth is universally the experience of every living human being. How so? The Bible says that we were created in the image of God. And then when God made us humans, that we were flawless and we were destined to be princes. We were destined to be linked with him forever, to be the sons of God. But we got caught up in a conflict 
We became the victims of circumstance. And yes, we were guilty in that. We had a part to play in what happened to us. But the conflict between good and evil, in a sense, between God and Satan, it caused a fall in someone. Her name was Eve, followed by Adam, and then successively upon all of us. And the result is that every human being, as we come into a realization of what we are, of who we are, we realize that there's a lameness in us, that there's more that we're not experiencing, that there was something that I was created for, but I can't see what it is. And for some reason, I feel as though I've been sold out from underneath what I'm supposed to be. And I'm living in a pastureless place where I can't satisfy the appetite that's inside. I keep trying, I keep grasping, I keep filling, but yet the more I fill, the emptier I am, and it seems the larger the capacity is that isn't full. And I don't understand what it is, but there's a lameness because I can't seem to pick myself up from my bootstraps and do anything about it. I'm crippled concerning finding the reason why I'm alive. And everybody experiences that. And all of us, apart from Christ, under the fall, our lives have written over them, destroying shame. And we look at the things that we've done and the things that we've been through and, and the things that we're embarrassed about and constantly humanity is plagued with a guilt. We're under this condemnation of knowing that we're not what we should be. And we live in this place of shame. And thus all of us share the identity of Mephibosheth in a deep sense. We know that we are not what we were made to be. But it's also true on a more individual level. I heard one preacher say once that no one can really understand Mephibosheth until they're crippled because they've been dropped by someone they trusted. And when I heard that, it kind of hit me a little bit because I could relate to that. I could understand what that meant. I have met many people that have spent years wondering what their life would be like if their parents had been informing their identity instead of leveraging their loyalty in their divorce fight. And they became crippled in the crossfire of a conflict that wasn't their fault. I have seen young men and young women who've become lame because they let their heart out too hard for someone that didn't share the same affection for them and they were dropped and something happened inside and they became hollowed out in a shell of what they had been previously. And a part of them is crippled, a relational part, a real part, a living part of them is crippled and they can't get it back. They can't find it again. I have seen women and men that have been betrayed by and dropped by their spouses and the effects that come with that, the crippling effects that come with it, the inability to trust again, to love again. I've seen men and women become lame because of some shame in their life, some decision that they made, some mistake that they made along the way that they can't get back. They can't undo the consequences of it. And because of it, they constantly are carrying the crippledness of that position that they're in. They lose heart. They lose strength. They lose confidence. They're afraid to stand. And I have seen many that are stuck in Lodibar, in the place where there's no pasture, no help. There's a silent suffering. And the truth of the matter is, is that there is not one of us, not a human being alive that makes it through 
without being dropped and crippled in some way. I remember when my, youngest, or my oldest daughter, who you saw on the screen a little while ago in the promo for the young adults, she is now in Quantico, uh, Virginia, doing top secret things for the government. That sounds cool, doesn't it? But that's not really the total truth, you know. But, but she, she is so alive. And I remember when she was just an infant, we only had one. And it was, she was so brand new. She still had that infant cry and she still smelled like a new car, like a new, you know, a new baby, I mean. And, and I just remember this one moment where uh, Georgia had this sling, you know, that she would carry Hosanna around in. And Hosanna was, was sleeping peacefully in the sling on our bed. And something came out of her you know, that, that needed to be addressed and dealt with. And so she needed to move from the bed to the changing table, which was uh, part of the pack and play, you know, the playpen. And it was just like this little thing. And it was like literally from, he- from here to here. So I carefully picked up the sling and I picked up the sling and, 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 and she was cradled safely in the sling. And as, and as I moved it, I don't know what happened, if she rolled or if she wasn't as secure as I thought, but she rolled out of the sling and it was like one of those like slow motion mo- moments where like, oh my God, I just broke my daughter. And, and she rolled out of the sling and she, 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 did a, she did a full spin and she landed perfectly on her back between the changing table and the edge of the pack and play, perfectly cradled, like, like she fell like two inches and just landed like that. And I was like, oh. Oh my, oh my goodness, I almost, I almost broke it. Like, I almost just killed my daughter for life, you know. And I realized the fragility of a baby, you know, but I realized the responsibility that I have as a parent. And, and thank God I didn't really drop her that day, but I've dropped her many times since. Not on purpose and not, not literally but I can think of things, times where I let her down and not just her, but I have five others that I've broken as well, you know, and, and we do because there's no way you're getting through this thing without being dropped. There's no way you're getting through it without being crippled by someone and left in that place. But thank God there's a king. Thank God there's a greater than David. Thank God there's someone who doesn't care so much about the condition that you're in right now as he does the story of how that happened and why that happened that he fully knows and investigates that he doesn't just run with the rumors of what everyone else thinks. And so David asks and he says, where is he? And he says in Lodabar, and it tells us there in the text, it says that David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machir from Lodabar. David initiated and said, I'm going to go find him where he is. And so the king goes down to this place where he is and he asks for him. Now Mephibosheth had to respond. And I wonder what that was like. Because here's this man who is not what he should be, And the man who is what he should be is sitting in a throne in Jerusalem while he's sitting in poverty in Lodabar. And now he gets a message, hey, the king wants to see you. He wants to talk to you. And I wonder if that was a little bit of a struggle for Mephibosheth. I wonder if he was thinking to himself, like, I don't know if I really want to go. I mean, usually the first thing a new king does when he comes to power is kills all the competition. Is that, does he want me to come so he can just put away any chance that any of my descendants are ever going to rise up against him? 
I know something of him. I've heard of the relationship between David and Jonathan. Maybe that's not the case. Probably not. I wonder if he struggled within himself. Oh, yeah, this is going to be great. The giant slayer meets a crippled. I need, my, I need my condition mocked more by seeing a mighty warrior stand before me. I don't know if I want to endure the emotional stress of that. I don't know if I want to come face to face with what I should have been. I'm content where I am. I've learned how to deal with the situation as it is. Do I really want to go and do that? Does David just want to rub it in? Maybe Mephibosheth had the thought. Maybe it crossed his mind. Well, no, I'm a proud man. I'm an Israelite. And I'm a Benjamite. I was born a Benjamite. I'm going to die a Benjamite. I don't need to be in Judah. I don't need to go to the palace. I don't need any of that. He can have what he is. I'm going to be true to myself. And even if his intentions are good, no thanks. I think those might have been real thoughts he had. I mean, what would you think if you were to put yourself in that position for a minute? Well, thank God, Mephibosheth goes. He says, all right, what do I have to lose? And so he comes to David, and David calls him by his name. In verse 6, it says that David said Mephibosheth. He doesn't say cripple. He doesn't say useless, without pasture. Let me show you how lost you are. No. He calls him by his name. He says Mephibosheth. Calls him by his name. And then he says, fear not. First thing God says when God apprehends anybody in the Bible or in your life, fear not. What's going to happen if I go to the king? What's going to happen if I, if I approach Christ, the one who suffered and is now reigning? What's he going to do? What does he want from me? Does he want to rub in my condition? Is he going to grind my face into the dirt and make me do penance for the things that I've done in my past? What does he want with me? And when, when David comes and he says, fear not. And what does Jesus say? Fear not. For I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you will eat bread at my table continually. I want you to hear the kindness that David shows to him. Number one is he puts him at ease concerning his position there. And then he says, I'm going to show you kindness. I am going to restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Now understand this. In the Bible, especially in the OT, the Old Testament, land is a symbol of your inheritance. It's a symbol of what God has given to you. It's not real estate. It's what's inside of you. It's destiny. It's what you were made for. It's promise. It's purpose. It's substance. That's the land in the Old Testament. And what David is saying to Mephibosheth here symbolically is Christ speaking and saying, I'm going to restore to you that which was lost. What you should have had that you don't have because of things outside of your control, I am going to impart to you in my kindness. That's my motivation. He says, I'm going to feed you. That means I'm going to provide and take care of you. And then I love this. He says, you're going to eat at my table. I'm going to give you, listen, a seat at the table. And that means more than just a plate full of food. It was a place of influence and a place of honor. That Mephibosheth would be there with the mighty men of David with the sons of David, the princes, with the wives of David, with the people that were closest to David, that David loved and that knew his heart and saw him without his 
kingly crown and everything that he had to be in public. That the real life things happened at the table and he was given a seat at the table right there in the presence of King David. Listen, this is the kindness of God. We've already seen that David is a reflection of Christ. David suffered in, in the realm of a false rejected king. But now he's reigning and all of his enemies are under his feet. That's Jesus. Jesus came into this world, into the realm of a, of a king, a false king, Satan, who declared himself to be the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that rules in this world presently. Jesus was under that and he suffered under that. But now he's resurrected and he reigns glorified and his enemies are under his feet. And he's in that place now. And this is a picture, this story, this passage is a picture of what Christ reigning in heaven is doing right now. He's looking and he's saying, who can I show kindness to? I know where I've been. I understand what this is all about. And who now can I show? Are there any of the household of Adam that yet remain that I can show the kindness of God to? And he inquires of a servant Isn't the Holy Spirit called the helper or the servant in the Bible? And you can hear the conversation happening in heaven between Jesus and the Spirit saying, are there yet any sons of Adam left that I can show the kindness of God to? And the helper says, yeah, there are, but have you seen them? (laughs) They're not in great shape right now. They're sold, they're lame, they're without pasture. And what does Jesus do? He says, send and fetch. Go get him. And Jesus himself comes and he apprehends and he says, he he implores and he says that my motive is my kindness. I don't want anything from you. You don't have anything to offer me. You can't add anything to me, but purely out of the kindness of God, I have given my life so that you can become what you were destined to be and what you could never make yourself. But yet there's a need for a response. And as Mephibosheth had to respond to the invitation of David, so the sons of Adam that are called by Christ, we have to respond. We have to say, yes, I I will. And some go and some don't, but all respond because to not go is a response. But to those that go, what does Jesus say? He says, fear not. He says, I'll show you kindness. Jesus says to those that come, I will restore what should have been yours from the beginning. Jesus says, I will feed the hunger that you couldn't satisfy in all of your greatest attempts. Jesus says, I will give you a place at the table. And then just like David commanded Ziba to till the land for Mephibosheth. So God gives the Holy Spirit as a helper and the one who takes care, the one who leads, the one who gives light, the one who opens the word, the one who feeds. God commands his servant to be a helper of those that respond to him, even as David sent and commanded Ziba. And then the icing on the cake, David says in verse 11 concerning Mephibosheth, that he will sit at my table as one of the sons of the king. He's not here as a servant. He's not here as a dead dog, as he declares himself to be. He's here as one of the sons of the king. What kindness is there in God? I do have a problem with the story, though. And here here it is, and maybe this is just personal, but I don't think that it is. 
Because I, I read the story and I understand that I am Mephibosheth in the story. I get it. I understand and I agree. I am lame. I am sold under sin. I am inadequate. I don't measure up. I am as a dead dog in the presence of the Lord. All of that I'm good with. I am there. I am also saved by grace through faith because of Jesus and I receive it. I'm accepted by God. I believe it and receive it. I am restored. I am satisfied in Jesus. That doesn't mean I live always in a state of bliss and and, and contentment, but I understand the satisfaction of God and I have been positioned at his table. I am a recipient. I stand before you tonight a recipient of all of those things. Here's my problem, is that I don't like being a lame man at a table with warriors, right? So, I mean, here, you put yourself in Mephibosheth's braces for a minute. You're there, and you're at the table, and it's a place of honor and influence, but you're looking across, and there's Joab, and you're like, that guy has done more in five minutes than what I've accomplished all my life, And, and there's Brazilii who killed a lion-like man in a pit on a snowy day. And there's the guy who killed an Ethiopian who was eight feet tall and was holding a weaver's beam. And there's David's kids. And what am I doing here? I mean, have you ever felt like that? Have you ever been given a seat at a table that you don't belong at? I have. I've been there. I've been on boards and I've sat there going like, why am I here? (laughs) (laughs) This is ridiculous. You know, these people actually think they have brains. You know, I have nothing to contribute in this situation. And the only way I can even look smart is if I just keep my mouth shut. And that's not working out. You know, it's horrible to have a seat at a table when you know that that you don't really deserve it in the whole thing. I mean, you can imagine what it's like. They're they're waiting for dinner and everybody's seated. Is everybody here? There's one empty seat. And you just hear clank, clank. Clank, oh no, we're waiting for Mephibosheth. Clank, clank, and then he finally works his way up in his seat. Everybody's very kind, but everyone in the room knows that he's just there because he's Jonathan's son. He's just there because he's Jonathan's son. That's the only reason that he's here. And I personally, I don't want to feel like I'm just being thrown a bone. Like God is just, well, all right, you know, you couldn't do anything for yourself, so come on in, you know, come on in. Everyone gets a trophy, you know, just come on in and and, and the whole thing. I don't want that. I don't want the job because my dad has a good reputation. You know, like if you're anything like your father, then you're going to do just fine here at the company. Welcome aboard. It's like, I thank you. I'm glad that, that, that my dad was good, but I don't, that's not the way I want it to work. I don't want it to be that way. You know, okay, you know, you get the position because the culture is poised to honor your lifestyle or your skin color or your race right now. And so we're going to give that to you because of that. You're going, thanks, but is that really the way it's supposed to be? You know, that you're, you're kind of just throwing me a bone right now, but, but why? I don't know if that this doesn't feel right. There's something wrong with this. And, and what happens to me is at that point, the kindness kind of mocks me a little bit because it only makes me aware or more aware of how crippled I actually am. Well, I'm here by, you know, because I couldn't be here for any other thing and I'm just reminded constantly of my lameness. Above the table where everyone can see, I look just like everyone else. But below the table where no one else can see, everyone else has legs and I can't walk. And I don't want anybody to know it. I don't want anybody to see it. But yet I can't escape the reality of it. And I don't know if you ever feel like that, but sometimes I do. 
Like, yeah, Lord, you saved me, but I am a mess. My life is a mess. And I don't want you to throw me in a bone. I want my legs back. This is where the kindness of God goes further, reaches more powerfully than the kindness of David. Because when God calls you to his table, he does not simply say, okay, I am going to do these things and you are in this condition for life. No, Jesus changes things. In John chapter 5, when Jesus came, who was the express image of the Father, the seeker who called those to follow him, when he came, it says he came to a pool. I want to read it to you. It's John chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. It says this. It says that there is a Jerusalem by the sheep market, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Beth- Bethesda, having five porches. And in these laid a great multitude of impotent folk, blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. And whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now long time in that case, he said unto him, will you be made whole? Do you want to be made whole? And the impotent man, the man who was lazy, the man who had no power, the man who had been crippled for 38 years answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said unto him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. A man who had been crippled for 38 years, who knew lameness, he knew hunger, he knew excuses. Jesus didn't ask him if he wanted a seat at the table. Jesus asked him if he wanted to be made whole. And I need you to understand this. I'm almost finished. Is that everyone at David's table was Mephibosheth at some point in their life. Joab And the mighty men that were all sitting there, we read that when David first found them, that they were in debt and they were distressed and they were discontented. They were homeless, jobless losers. And it was a relationship with David that turned them into warriors and mighty men and winners. Abigail, who was sitting there at the table, she was trapped and bound in a marriage that was awful, a situation where she was quenched and squelched. And it was the kindness of God and the person of David that brought her into the place where she was. Even David himself was Mephibosheth at some point. You remember that when David was running from Saul, what did David say to Saul? He said, I am a dead dog. He used the same phrase that Mephibosheth used. David had been dropped by all the people that at one point had been singing his praises. Now they were hunting for his soul. He was abandoned by them. David was a fugitive that when anyone would ask his father, hey, whatever happened to that young son of yours, David, the one who killed the giant? And they would hear, oh, he's a fugitive. He's running from the law. And they'd say, oh, what a shame. What a shame that someone with such promise 
Someone that had such hope written on their life. And now they're a fugitive. They're running from the law. David had been Mephibosheth. Everyone is, Jesus doesn't leave you in the condition that you were in. He is the one that makes you whole. He restores what was lost. He turns lameness into power. He turns laziness into productivity. He turns poverty into usefulness. He changes things. He turns addictions into satisfaction. He changes self-absorption into a desire to be a part of something bigger, part of a community, part of others. It's what he does. The kindness of God does more than give you a title and throw you a bone. It redeems your life. It changes you. The question is, how does he do that? Let me read you one more verse. It's Titus chapter 3. It's a short passage. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. I think it's going to come up on the screen. Let me read it to you. Paul says this. He says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's Lodabar. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration, listen, and renewing of the Holy Ghost which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, what the kindness of God does is it takes us and it takes Jesus and it swaps the two positions. Remember the Last Supper? Remember the night before Jesus went to the cross when he was sitting there with his disciples? the apostles that were a representation of all of God's people through the ages. He, he sat there, the king sat at the table and he had given these men who had really nothing to offer except for their lives, their bodies. And he sits there with them at the table and he looks at all these guys that they can't even figure out anything. And he looks at them and then he picks up a piece of bread and he, and he holds it up and he says, he says, I want you guys to understand something. He says, this is my body. And this body is going to be broken for you. And I want you to receive it. I am going to be broken. And what I am is going to be imparted to you. And then he did likewise with the cup. As they were sitting there at the table, he gave them a living illustration of how this works. I'm taking your place and I'm giving you mine. There's a transition, a substitution, a switch that's about to happen. And then Jesus went to the cross and he died. He bore the wounds, the stripes, the nails, the thorns. He bled from seven places and he gave up his life and was broken so that you and I could be birthed into his kingdom. And it was through his righteousness, not ours, that we were given a place at the table. 
Now we come to him and we receive what he gives. We accept Christ into our life. We say, God, I am a dead dog, but I give myself wholeheartedly to you. And he says to you, fear not. I'm going to show you the kindness of God and I'm going to restore to you the land of what was supposed to be yours that you're not currently living in. And I'm going to feed you and I'm going to give you a seat at my table. And as we begin to know him, he begins to restore. And what we once could never be, he begins to make us by his grace. And one day, we are going to gather with him at his table in eternity. And we will be there sitting, and there will be one empty seat. And we'll say as everyone here, and we'll hear in the distance, we'll hear clank, 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 clank. And the king of kings and lord of lords will pull himself up into the chair. And say, this is what I've done for you. This is my body, which is broken for you. That is the kindness of God. That's what he wants with our lives. He's not trying to take something from us. He's not trying to exploit us and use us in some way. He's not trying to get us to deny our ungodly lust so that we can suffer and wear the badge and identify with him in that way for that reason. His will and intent for our lives is to show his kindness to us. And you may be here tonight and you have never been a recipient of that kindness. But just by you being here right now, right now, it is God inviting you and coming to you and saying, you're in Lodabar, in the house of Makir, you've been sold under sin. You're without pasture. You are keenly aware that you're not what you were made to be. But I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And he who knew no sin became sin for you that you might become the righteousness of God even in him. And I am able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ask or think. But you need to respond. And that invitation is open to all. The worship team can come. We're going to close the service now. There's one last little thing that happens at the end of the chapter. I don't know if you caught it, but it tells us that Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Mitya. Did you see that? And, and again, I read it, and what question am I going to ask? Why is this here? You know, it's like, Mitya never comes up again. He doesn't become like a, you know, he's just, there was Mitya. He's just, why is it there? I'll tell you why. Because when Mephibosheth was five years old and he was picked up by his nurse and quickly swept away because of the battle and then dropped or he fell and became crippled, he watched everything that would be his future dissolve in front of his eyes at that moment. The prince became a crippled pauper at that moment and he lived that reality for the next span of his life. But now, He's in a position where he gets to see his young son at probably around the same age pick up where he left off. And I'll tell you, that's one of the most amazing things that I've got to experience Jesus do in my life. Because, you know, I have some limps, some things that I carry with me from my 19 years of of living apart from God without Christ in the world, from the drops and the things that have happened to me. But to be able to look at my kids And to be able to see that it's not just me that he's given a seat at the table, but the things that he has done now in them. And I get to see 
in them the things that maybe I'll never get to see on this side of eternity for myself. Such an amazing God that we serve. Do you know him tonight? Have you received him? Have you said yes to Jesus? There's no life like it. Father, we just thank you tonight for for your word and we pray that you would help us, Lord, to hear your voice, that we'd hear your heartbeat, that through King David and his kindness, we would understand and discern and receive the kindness of Christ, your son. I pray tonight, Lord, for every one of us here that maybe we become doubtful, maybe we become cynical, maybe in our trials, we become resentful towards you, thinking that it's not worth it in some way. Oh, Lord, if it should take 15 years for us to receive our sight or our strength or our ability to walk or the courage to stand or to receive the blessing that you promised to give us, we declare confidently tonight that we believe. We believe you, Lord. We put our trust in you. We receive what you offer and what you give. We declare that we are but dead dogs, useless, vile. But you, Jesus, you shed such kindness on us. So tonight, Lord, we receive it. And we ask that we would walk in the strength of your name and that we would have that place at your table as one of the king's sons. Help us, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.